At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply is about running for native people in Indian country and that's what it is it's about when you're doing something like this and just as an indigenous person when you're succeeding this is about much more than just you it's about your people your community your nation and that's kind of something that I want people to remember with Rosalie this isn't just about her taking a stand for this issue it's about her succeeding as a young indigenous person who has had to come overcome far more barriers than other people and that she deserves to be a champion too. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, well, let me tell you who we're interviewing this week, but I got to give you a little bit of backstory first. It starts at a little-known Division II high school track and field meet in Washington State. There, a series of bracing viral photos brought attention to the issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. A senior track star named Rosalie Fish, a member of the Cowlitz Indian Tribe and a senior at Muckleshoot Tribal School, dominated the meet. As she ran her way to multiple medals, Fish also had a statement to make. She ran with a red-painted handprint over the side of her face and mouth, and she painted the letters MMIW, Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women, on her right leg. Now, Fish competed in multiple races, more than her usual number of events, despite exhaustion. She wanted each race to pay tribute to a different missing or murdered Indigenous woman. Her time undoubtedly suffered for using this strategy, both for the emotion involved and the sheer number of events, but she still won three golds, a silver, and the Sportsmanship Award. Now, on to our guest this week. We have someone to speak about what happened with Rosalie Fish and the issue of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. We're talking to Tracy Leost, an Indigenous activist from the Metis community in St. Laurent, Manitoba, and a medalist runner at the North American Indigenous Games. Leos Metis' name is Agichita Ikwe, which means warrior woman, and it's very appropriate. Leos made national news in Canada when she ran a four-day, 115-kilometer run, that's about 72 miles, to raise awareness around the same issue of the murdered and the missing. So because Tracy Leos is such a Canadian hero for what she did to raise awareness about this issue, and because the Canadian government just issued a report describing a Canadian genocide of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. We thought we should speak to Tracy Leost on the Edge of Sports podcast, and we have her on the line right now. Hey, Tracy, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm very well. I wanted to get the pronunciation of your name correctly. Is it Leost? Um, in English, Leost, and then Fran- French is Leost. How old are you right now? And you're in school, right? I'm 20, turning 21 in September, and I'm in my, uh, I guess, going into my fourth year of social work in the fall. And you, do you want to be a social worker? Is that your, what you want to do? Uh, some, it's a huge field, so something within that I want to work hands-on, like, in the community with people, specifically Indigenous people is what I want to do. Um, but I kind of think my social work degree is just the first step of that. I still have yet to kind of focus on what exactly I want to do. Fantastic. And obviously, I want your thoughts about Rosalie Fish. Um, but first, I, I really want to just talk to you about some of the things that you've done. I mean, you ran, was it 72 miles in four days? Do I, do I have that right yeah. in terms of the math? I mean, 
what was that like for you? I mean, just physically. Um, physically, that was obviously like something I had never done before. So putting my body through that was quite extreme. It's kind of like running a few full marathons every day almost. Um, and I'm only a half marathon runner, so I have never even ran a full marathon. Wow. So that was like a totally new, a totally new distance to me. Um, but it was really, really tough on my body. Um, we're like this summer, I think will be four years since the run. And I still am working towards getting my knees back to where they used to be prior to the run. Um, so physically that like, I really put my body through, um, something really, really difficult. Um, but I think that was kind of just part of the sacrifice. Yeah. And obviously, uh, as I said in the intro, I mean, you did that run as a way to raise awareness around missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Um, you know, I'm calling you from the United States, of course, uh, from a Canadian perspective, did you feel like it accomplished what you wanted to do? I think so. Um, the kind of the whole reason for the run was to like bring awareness for this issue, but then also to kind of was to use my running shoes to give silence a voice. And kind of what that all meant for me was as an indigenous person, I went to school with non-indigenous people, privileged non-indigenous people who have never had to experience what it's like to be a target or have never had to experience coming from a group of people who is systematically oppressed and is constantly resisting genocide and is truly just being victimized constantly. So they had no idea what it was like to be an Indigenous woman and they had no idea what it was like to have to have your cousin, your mom, your sister, your grandma missing or murdered or something along those lines. So when I started, like, when this issue came to my attention, I was trying to have these conversations with the people around me because the more I learned, the more I realized the kind of the severity of this issue. And I became very passionate, but also very angry. And I wanted to have conversations with my classmates and the people in kind of the area I lived around, but no one got it and no one wanted to have that conversation. It was very, they denied the issue. They were very... Um, much so about blaming the victim or blaming indigenous people. They're very stereotypical. So kind of the biggest motivator was the people around me weren't talking about this issue and they needed to be, and they needed to understand the severity of this issue. So that was the first part. The second part was beyond just my community and my day-to-day life, the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and two-spirit people was not a conversation people were having in 2015. Not a big conversation, not a countrywide conversation. I know that obviously families who had been affected by this were obviously trying to tell those stories and kind of bring to light the severity of this issue. But I remember in 2015, not a lot of people knowing kind of how bad this crisis really was. So for me, it was the chance, an opportunity to do something drastic to grab people's attention so that they would listen. And beyond that, I don't even think it was so much so about me. Obviously, it was about me in this run, but like I said, it provided me with the opportunity to use my running shoes to give silence a voice. And what I mean by that is this wasn't me speaking for people. This was me saying, hey, this is this issue. These are families who are experiencing this. And then now they have their platform to speak to that issue. So in 2015, another motivator to my run was our prime minister at the time did this interview and he denied um, that Canada needed an inquiry into the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. Stephen Harper, is that right? Yes, yes. And that was huge to me, to have the kind of the person in the biggest and most powerful decision-making seat in our country not valuing Indigenous women, and he said something along the lines of it wasn't high on Canada's radar. And that hurt to know as an Indigenous person that your life and your safety and your right to have a safe life is not being taken seriously. So kind of taking all that into scope, I put that, all that energy into my run, and that is kind of the why. Mm. A couple of follow-up questions from some of the things you said. You talked about your classmates in high school 
uh, blaming the victim, uh, that, that sounds monstrous to me. Like, how do you blame the victim if you're talking about the murdered and the missing? What, what does that mm-hmm. mean? What does that mean that they blame the victim? What, what, what do you possibly say to blame um, the victim in that like context? I can, I, I can think of a few, like, quotes I remember people saying to me. I remember um, sitting at a kitchen table with um, a friend of mine and his family were having dinner, and I remember there was this art, the headline front page of the paper was about Tina Fontaine, a young, young girl who was missing in Winnipeg, and then her body was pulled from the river. Um, Tina's story was, uh, I would say, a driving force in bringing to light the epidemic of MMIWG uh, to us. And um, we're having dinner, and someone had made this side comment, and I was like, some snarky kind of comment about how she was pulled from the river and whatever. And I kind of, I tried to defend that and say like, she's a 15 year old girl who is in foster care, who has lost her dad, who had never got grief counseling, who has been failed by every single system that was meant to protect her. This is not her fault. And I remember getting to an argument at this kitchen table And I had left afterwards just angry that no one really understood how easily that reflected to me as an Indigenous person, that that could have been me. And later on, once like a few months goes by, and then I kind of announced that I'm doing this run. And I remember that person that I was at that kitchen table with texted me and said, why don't you make a difference for something that actually matters and educate yourself about something that's actually important. And when I defended again that comment to say like, that's that's monstrous that's actually disgusting that you think that and that person's defense was these women are indigenous in downtown winnipeg they're drinking they're on drugs they're uh, prostitutes they have it coming so they said that if you're a person living in poverty using substances and being a street worker that you deserve what's coming to you And that to me is disgusting, that people are so misled, misguided, so uneducated about the systematic oppression and the social determinants that affect the lives of Indigenous people. Um, And those are the things that I was being told. And even when I tried to talk about um, one of the things I learned when I was kind of learning about MMIWG2S was there's a person in... BC, his name is Robert William Picton, and in 2015, he was the most successful serial killer in North America. He preyed on the lives of vulnerable Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit people, in downtown Vancouver's east side, and um, he brought them in with drugs and partying and money and things like that, and then he would assault them, sexually assault them, and then he would kill them on his pig farm. And it's estimated that he killed 49 women, more than half being Indigenous. Um, And that was one of the things I was talking about, that one person is capable of killing almost 50 women and got away with it for years because even when people came forward, the police said, these women are street workers, they're using drugs, they're in downtown Vancouver's east side, the poorest area code in Canada. They have it coming for them. They deserve it. They shouldn't be there. And just to think that even the people that are supposed to be protecting these women are letting that slide, um, that kind of shows you how deep this issue is, that this isn't just a person-to-person who's racist or stereotypical. This is the very systems that are supposed to be protecting Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit people are, um, are not and are stereotypical. And those are the conversations I was having where that when I'd bring this up, someone would say, like, well, why was she in the North End? What do you mean? Why was she in the North End? Why was she using drugs? But when you try and think or try to explain what intergenerational trauma is like, what um, living through trauma and what kind of the effects of residential school have continued and still have on our people that lead to poverty, substance use, having to um, work on the streets, which also is a choice for some people. And if that's your choice, you still have the right to be safe doing that. And that is something that I feel like, especially these conversations I have with people of privilege could not understand. They themselves have never experienced struggle. They have never had to live in poverty in the north end of Winnipeg. Their parents um, never experienced trauma, never went to residential school. They 
played on the best sports teams and now they're in the States playing college sports and getting their education and they've never had to experience parents who are trying to um, kind of heal from their trauma and they've never had to experience kind of those effects of what Indigenous people live through every single day. And those were the arguments that I was having every single day with people when I was trying to justify what I was doing. Wow. So the reality you're describing seems uh, so different from, and you should tell me if I'm, please correct me if I'm wrong about this, but it seems so different than 2019 and the Canadian government, um, you know, re- getting behind the, the, the reality of what they're calling a mm-hmm. Canadian genocide and putting this report out. Is, is it that has there been just a sea change in consciousness in Canada? Is that being overstated right now? I mean, what kind of a step forward from a civil rights perspective is this report? How is it being received? Yeah. Um, just thinking, like, when I started this work, like, when I started understanding this issue in 2014, the run in 2015, then taking myself to now, um, I wasn't always a part of this conversation, so I can't speak to the people that were doing this work prior to me, but when I came into kind of this role of using my voice and I kind of had this platform and suddenly I was making connections, for me, just to see the difference that four years has made in the terms of who is speaking about this issue to know that people across the country and every province, city, territory, community are speaking up about this issue. Women are telling their stories. Families are telling their stories. It's all over the news. So I think now it's it's been a bigger conversation than it ever, ever has been before. And when I was doing, when I did my run in 2015, I pushed for an inquiry that we would look into why this is happening. And beyond just why this is happening, we would figure out why this is happening, how this is happening, how we're going to prevent it, and then recommendations would come out of that. Exactly like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission did. And um, when Justin Trudeau um, was campaigning for prime minister, that was one of the things that he had stated, is that this inquiry would happen. And that alone is huge for Indigenous people, that for years, Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit people, families were silenced, and now our government um, supported this massive inquiry is huge. That alone, the fact that this inquiry happened, um, but from a civil rights perspective that this report is now out, I think the biggest thing for me, I know out there a lot of people are really caught up on the term genocide, and there's been a lot of debate, and I don't think that's something that needs to be debated. Um, I know the people who are against it are are kind of referring back to the Holocaust um, and what Jewish people had experienced, but I don't think they realize that residential schools is also defined as a genocide. And when you look at the experience of Indigenous people, our whole existence and relationship from the point that settlers made contact in Turtle Island in North America has been about resisting genocide. In 1492, when Christopher Columbus sailed the ocean blue, he came here and assaulted women, sexually assaulted and murdered our women. So from the very point that settlers and European people had contact with Indigenous people, Indigenous people had been resisting a genocide. So you kind of have to just take it out of a little bit of a context and step back to understand the relationship that we have constantly had with European people from the Indian Act to the wars to colonization to residential school and the 60s scoop. It has all been about trying to wipe out the indigenous population and the epidemic of MMIWG2S is no different. So for me, like that aside, it's in there. It's in the report. In the whole report, it explains, defends why this is a genocide. And I know that people who are defending this certainly haven't read the thousands of pages in this report. Otherwise, I don't think they'd be defending it. Beyond that, um, the most important thing for me in this report is that it tells the truth. And connecting that to genocide and this Canadian genocide is that this whole report tells the truth of Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit people, families, it's the truth. So when that truth connects to genocide, you can't defend it because that's the truth. And every single page of that report tells the truth of people's experiences. 
people and families, survivors from across the country got to tell their stories, which is very traumatic. You have to be courageous enough to reopen those wounds, to share those stories so that your truth can be told, so that our country can finally listen is huge. So for me, it's about the truth. Now the truth is out there, and we cannot deny that. The people that I was fighting with for years, whether this issue was important or not, cannot deny what is happening to Indigenous women because it's in that report. And there's all those recommendations in there. And for me, the report is one thing, and achieving those recommendations is another. So we've completed the first step. The inquiry is done. The next step is, okay, the truth is out there. Now let's get to work. Let's... um, kind of work towards these recommendations. And one thing I think people are forgetting is that this is not just on a very high government level that there is recommendations. This is person to person, neighborhood to neighborhood, community to community, organizations, um, like healthcare is in there, systems or institutions. So at every single level, people need to be doing work to address this issue. And that is huge too, is that it's not pointing the blame at the government or healthcare system or the police. Every single person has a responsibility to play in addressing this epidemic. Fantastic. Now, just to be clear for my listeners, when you say two-spirit people, you're talking about the trans-intersex community? Two-spirit um, is a term used in the LGBTQ2S community, um, and two-spirit is, um, it's hard to explain, um, it's an indigenous term for indigenous people. And I don't, I'm not going to define it specifically because that's for whoever identifies with that community to define. And I don't identify with that community. So I don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, I don't want it to come off as ignorant, but um, two, uh, two spirit is, um, is a part of the LGBTQ community. Um, so there's, and that that term is even becoming a lot bigger. Um, specifically in the inquiry, there are a, it's a much bigger term used. But two spirit is uh, is a part of that. So, um, I, I every two spirit person that I have met has defined it differently because it's their own experience. Um, so I don't want to use one person's definition and not somebody else's, but. Um, Recently, I can say that I was sitting in on this um, this conference sort of thing, um, and it was a two-spirit person from Manitoba speaking, and his definition just talked about, um, it's, he said himself that he was an Indigenous person who um, who had more than one spirit, and those spirits and identities were fluid, and um, that they aren't always kind of a lifetime thing. Um, I, and another example is that I know someone who identifies as a two-spirit person who is in ceremony right now, the Sundance ceremony, which is a four-year thing. And her first two years, she sat on the side of the women and her last two years, she's sitting on the side with men um, so that she is getting both experiences she needs for her spirit. But beyond that, Yes, it's a term um, and identity within the LGBTQ community. And to add on to that, um, 2S is something that hasn't always been identified with the term MMIW. And it's not because they're not going missing and they're not being murdered too, because they are exactly like a, any other Indigenous woman or girl. Um, it's just that I, they, um, for me specifically, it was about, meeting other people who are activating for this issue and also saying like, Hey, don't forget these people are experiencing this too. So a two spirit person experiences a whole nother level of oppression than just an, an indigenous female. Right. So when you're kind of talking about how layers of oppression kind of form, they experience something in addition to that. Um, But I want to make it clear that these people should not be forgotten either within this large epidemic. And they were included in um, the inquiry in the, the term they used for Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit people, the LGBTQ community, kind of everything that was included in that, the two-spirit um, title was used as well. 
Wow, thank you for that. Now, let's talk about Rosalie Fish. Uh, how did you hear about what she did and what was your reaction? Her coming, of course, from Washington State, outside of Canada. Uh, what were your thoughts? Um, I first remember just kind of scrolling through, uh, I think it was Facebook, and seeing this, I'm going to call it like a hardcore, like this badass picture. It was a black and white one and the head-on shot of her. And I didn't even have to read the caption. I just saw the red painted mouth, uh, hand over her mouth, and I knew. Um, and this picture had gone like thousands of shares. And it just so happened that one of my friends on Facebook had seen it and shared it. Um, I saw her name. And then from there on Instagram, Twitter, it was just popping up. So the more it popped up, kind of the more I kept clicking and reading about it and kind of just understanding what she was doing. My reaction, um, was obviously that I feel a connection that I had done something similar um not only as a runner but for MOIW as an indigenous young person um I feel like I I connect to her very much so on kind of the stance she took the solidarity the why um so my reaction is obviously pride and encouragement that this isn't only a conversation in Canada that, that other people are kind of taking this seriously um so I'm I'm proud that she sacrificed things so that she could stand in solidarity with Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit people. Um, and I remember reading, actually, in, what was it? I can't remember. I read online that people criticized her that she sacrificed her times and that they didn't think she should have done that in order to bring light to this issue. It was something to do with she ran an extra race or something during that meet and that kind of is where I get angry is that people are completely missing the point because I can assure you that it wasn't about the time and it wasn't about the placement and it wasn't about being first. That was not her concern when she chose to represent those four women. Um, and like I had stated in the article I had written for you was that it's one thing to kind of, bring to light the issue of MMIWG2S, but it's another thing to tell or bring a platform to tell the stories of women who have experienced this epidemic. So it's one thing to throw the numbers at people that there's over 4,000 missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit people in Canada alone. That's one thing. But then to say, this is so-and-so, this is her story, this is what happened to her. So for me, that was Ramona Wilson. And for Rosalie Fish, that was four different women. And that's really powerful for me, that she not only decided to take a stand for this issue, but she also um, used her platform and her running shoes to give a voice to the women that are um, experiencing this epidemic. And there's a few different things in, um, in Canada that I've seen, like the Red Dress Project or the Faceless Fall Project, that... Um, brings light to the issue and the stories of women without um, without telling the story for them kind of thing, if that makes any sense. Um, but I think what she did was very, very powerful. And I think she connected a lot, connected with a lot of different people. Um, so I feel like just how many times that picture was shared and the amount of people it reached is amazing. I can assure you that picture has been seen across the world. So to just to know that one person is reaching thousands, if not like a million, millions of people is amazing. And I also think it's important, just like I had written earlier, was that this isn't just about MIW, G2S. This is about the experience Rosalie has had becoming a successful runner. And I don't know her experience personally, but we all know that the barriers are stacked far higher against Indigenous people than they are for non-Indigenous people. And the experiences Indigenous people have in sport is not the same as non-Indigenous people. And when I or when Rosalie or when any Indigenous person is running, it's not only about you. It's not about your time or you or your success. It's about running for your people. And the terms are different here in Canada, but like Rosalie had said, this is about running for Native people in Indian country. And that's what it is. It's about when you're doing something like this and 
just as an Indigenous person, when you're succeeding, this is about much more than just you. It's about your people, your community, your nation. And that's kind of something that I want people to remember with Rosemary. This isn't just about her taking a stand for this issue. It's about her succeeding as a young Indigenous person who has had to come overcome far more barriers than other people and that she deserves to be a champion too. Um, so I do think that that what she is doing is so powerful, but it's so much more than just an act of solidarity. Do you think sports is uniquely powerful to spread these kinds of messages? And if so, why? I think that sport is the perfect place for things like this. And I get criticized all the time that sport isn't the place for politics. But sport isn't just about entertainment. Like, could you imagine if your job as an athlete, as a professional athlete, was simply to show up every day and play hockey or tennis or baseball or basketball and just be a robot? You you go to practice and then you go to the meet or then you go to the game and then you have to go to an event or the conference or the post-game chatter and then you just go home and go to bed and redo it all. Like, I, I can't believe people actually think their sole purpose is to play the game, that sport, to succeed, to entertain that one person. Like, sport is so much more than that. And it's not, I don't even think it's about individuals taking a stand because, like, whole sports and teams are taking political stands and are, are raising awareness for issues. And the reason I think it's so amazing is because whatever sport it is or whatever sport team it is or league, they have an audience and they have a group of people that is listening. And whether it be an individual, one athlete, one team, one whole league, one whole sport, um, they are connecting with people. And when they stand up to say, like, um, whether it be domestic abuse for women, two-spirit people, for men, um, for anyone in the LGBT community, like, that is huge for one person to kind of take that stand or to raise, um, bring awareness to gender equality for education, all those kind of things is huge. And one example I'm thinking of is Brian Burke, who um, his family is the leading force with um, You Can Play. And the conversations that is starting with, like, sexuality and the fact that there is not a single person in the NHL that has come out as an openly gay person. Um, and it's systematically, or, sorry, statistically impossible for that not to be true, for there not to be one player in that whole league that um, isn't straight. And... Um, just to think of all the people who have come and supported that and that it's beyond the NHL. It's, I've seen college and university teams who are starting the you can play thing with their own teams. So for me, it's huge that being an athlete is one thing and being a passionate person is another. But when you can bring those two things together and reach far more people and do far greater things is what's really important for me. So whether that be one person, one team, one sport, um, but, yeah, that's like, I just, to think of the platform you're reaching and the change you're making when you bring those two things together, and I sincerely cannot imagine what being an athlete or what participating in sport would be like if I wasn't allowed to have a voice or if I wasn't allowed to be passionate. Um, because that is not what, like, my passion and my activism and sport go hand in hand for me. And you're not going to take that away from me. And it's what's really important is that, even if you're only reaching the person, people who are listening or watching, um, as long as they're getting the message, that's really like all it's about, that people who haven't heard about this issue or things like that are now hearing about it is so important. Um, but yeah, I think that like sport is a perfect place to be having these conversations, to be raising awareness. Wow, fantastically put. I'd be remiss before you go, I didn't ask you if you were a Raptors fan. And if you had uh, any thoughts about, uh, it, it, I had a friend of mine say to me, this is the first time um, all of Canada has had good feelings about Toronto. And uh, I, yep. just, I, I don't know <laughs> if you agreed with that and what your thoughts were. Uh, are you predicting a Raptors victory by the time this podcast goes live? Um, I was never 
very much into basketball until I came to university and two of my closest friends um, were on the women's basketball team at my school. Um, two phenomenal athletes, two, two girls of color who have overcome significant barriers to be incredible athletes. One who um, has been named the best um, athlete um, in all of women's basketball across CIS is huge. So um, that is when I became a basketball fan and it wasn't so much so about the NBA or it was so much more about just cheering on my friends. But to now understand the sport of basketball um, and to have our team, our our team isn't the only one we have, um, making it this far. Um, beyond that, to see the pride in people that Toronto has come this far and there's the slogan, We the North. Um, and I do feel that unity that everyone is rooting for our team. They win. I'm really hoping that would be so great for all of us and the kind of unity that that kind of stuff brings. So yes, fingers crossed they win. Um, I wouldn't classify myself as a Raptors fan because I've never um, in depth watched, but just as a Canadian who's rooting for my team, I, I really sincerely hope that happens. Um, I think it'd be really, really great for, for our country. That's awesome. Uh, and then the last thing I ask this of everybody who comes on the show. Um, so as you do this activism, as you do this important work, uh, what kind of music do you listen to? What's in, what's what's uh, oh. what, are you, what are you rocking these days on Spotify or various playlists oh, or however you uh, access music these days? Let me open my Spotify. Um, my music tastes all over the place. I used to be a huge country fan. Um, actually, the current first song that popped up was Formation by Beyonce. That's my number one gym song. Um, like, mine goes from, like, country to rap to, like, almost like a folk pop. It's it's all over the place. Um, I think my favorite song right now, though, would be, oh, boy, um... The Middle is a good song, one that I always listen to, and, oh, goodness, uh, Strip It Down, but I'm also one of those people that always listens to the older playlists, like the, this was the hot song in, like, 2012 or whatever, so it's like Rihanna and the older Drake songs and stuff like that. Um, it's all over the place, though. I don't have a specific choice for music. No, you did great there. That, that's awesome. <laughs> love it. L- love the eclecticism. Well, Tracy, I really do appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I think a lot of people are going to listen to this and be uh, truly enlightened about the issue and really appreciate your patience and your um, ability to explain very complicated issues in uh, very straightforward and powerful language. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. It was great chatting with you. You as well. And uh, be well. Go Raptors. Awesome. You too. (laughs) Yes, go Raptors. (laughs) We'll be back right after this. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important. And The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you got to read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the Mueller report believe it or not, Robert Mueller's absence of bringing charges against Donald Trump for obstruction of justice and how we could have seen this coming based on Robert Mueller's treatment of Roger Goodell in the National Football League. Okay, everyone who's disappointed that Robert Mueller didn't bring up formal charges against Donald Trump for obstruction should have seen this coming. Both the people praying and the people braying. The liberal class was praying for some kind of knight on a white horse that would banish Trump. They should have seen it coming. The president and his team of defenders that were braying witch hunt and hoax for two years should have seen it coming. 
They should have seen it coming, this damnable Mueller report, combined with Robert Mueller's absence of gumption to bring actual obstruction of justice charges. They should have seen this coming, not only because of who Donald Trump is. He's a venal criminal as well as a petty thug, someone who obstructs justice and commits impeachable offenses so often and so out in the open on his Twitter feed that it becomes a passing story instead of a national outcry. Just last week, he called for a boycott of a public company, AT&T, because he didn't like the coverage of their subsidiary, CNN. No, all the players should have seen this coming, not because of who Donald Trump is, petty thug that he is, but also because of who Robert Mueller is. Mueller's resume told the story of how this would go when his investigation started over two years ago. As I wrote at the time, Mueller is a blue blood, a Brahmin, and a ruling class functionary. This is the person who headed the FBI. This is a partner at one of the most posh and powerful DC insider firms, that of Wilmer Hale. This is a Manhattan-born former Marine from a wealthy family of corporate executives and military officers. Robert Mueller is not Che Guevara in wingtips looking to take down a US president. He is an institutionalist of the first order. He is a deodorizer, not an exterminator. The person you bring in to make sure that the institution of the presidency is protected. It has always been, I believe from Mueller's perspective, about protecting the executive branch from looking like the compromised slop house that it has presently become. Now one could have seen exactly how this would turn out if they were conversant in the first Mueller report. Call it Mueller 1.0. That was his investigation into whether or not the NFL and Commissioner Roger Goodell played a role in covering up the elevator video of Ray Rice punching his then-fiancée, now-wife, Janae Palmer. Mueller was handpicked by the NFL to lead the investigation, an investigation that to this day leaves a sour taste in one's mouth. Mueller produced a report back then that chided all of the power players while leaving the institution of the NFL commissioner another child of privilege, the senator's son, Roger Goodell, in place and intact. He produced a report that both critiqued the NFL while also allowing a bruised Goodell to proclaim a measure of exoneration. It gave Goodell's allies cover to say that the NFL's hands were clean and that Goodell, whose resignation was being called for from all four corners of the sports world, should remain in power. Mueller also limited his investigation in a way that proved to be extremely favorable to Goodell. The first 55 cases of domestic violence that had been brought before Goodell were largely ignored. It was only the 56th, the Ray Rice case, that brought scrutiny because of the viral violent video that accompanied it. Mueller only looked at that 56th case, a decision that could not have been sweeter to Goodell's ears. When Mueller finally released his report about the NFL's handling of the case, all of Goodell's critics who had trumpeted Mueller's integrity and core belief that he would quote unquote get to the bottom of Goodell's reign of error, were left with egg on their face. That should sound very familiar. Robert Mueller was never going to take down this presidency. If he wanted to, he could have done so. But Mueller wasn't brought in to put a pillow on the face of the last election. He was brought in to put a pillow under its head. He was brought in to save it. And it was never Trump the individual, who Mueller probably sees as a crude, malodorous buffoon. It was the presidency itself. Again, Mueller is not an exterminator, he's a deodorizer. And in Donald Trump, he had his ultimate challenge, the ultimate stink to attempt to deodorize. Robert Mueller did his job expertly, just as he did for the NFL. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. We are back on the Edge of Sports podcast. Uh, now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award stand up. this week is related to the incident that has the sports world buzzing. Golden State Warriors, quote-unquote, minority owner... Although there's a lot of pushback against that word owner, something we've been talking about on this show for quite some time. 
but minority owner uh, Mark Stevens pushing Kyle Lowry when Kyle Lowry ran into the stands and dived in to try to save a loose ball. And, you know, that would be assault in other circles. If Kyle Lowry went into Mark Stevens' billionaire office and pushed him, he'd be arrested. So the Just Stand Up Award this week, it goes to LeBron James, because LeBron James uh, took to Instagram, and he'd been largely silent during the NBA playoffs. And this is what he wrote on Instagram, and I think it's really important because when LeBron speaks, I mean, it's actually, I think, more important than when Commissioner Adam Silver speaks. It's more important when Michelle Roberts, head of the NBA Players Association, speaks. Uh, It's more important when anybody in the world of hoops speaks because what it does when LeBron speaks is it provides cover for other players to speak. So it actually has an actionable effect. So this is what LeBron said on Instagram. He said, There's absolutely no place in our beautiful game for that at all. There's so many issues here. When you sit courtside, you absolutely know what comes with being on the floor. And if you don't know, it's on the back of the ticket itself that states the guidelines. But more importantly, him being a part owner of the Warriors, he knew exactly what he was doing, which was so uncalled for. He knew the rules more than just the average person sitting watching the game courtside. So for that, something needs to be done ASAP. A swift action for his actions. Just think to yourself, what if Lowry would have reacted and put his hands back on him? You guys would be going crazy. Calling for him to damn near be put in jail, let alone being suspended for the rest of the finals, all because he was protecting himself. I've been quiet throughout the whole NBA playoffs watching every game, haven't missed one. But after I saw what I saw last night, I took time to let it manifest into my thinking. I couldn't and wouldn't be quiet on this. Protect the players. Privilege ain't welcome here. Powerful statement from LeBron James of solidarity with not just Kyle Lowry, but all players. And also the power dynamic between players and uh, minority stakeholders. I don't even want to say minority owners because the way this guy Mark Stevens acted, he acted like he was a minority owner. If you catch my drift, the way he put his hands on Kyle Lowry. Now the Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. This will be the easiest one in human history. It goes to Golden State Warriors equity share person Mark Stevens. He was fined $500,000. He'll be gone for a year from the game. I think he should have been forced to actually sell his stake in the team. But this is absolutely absurd. And it's part of the problem of all these hedge fund guys who are now buying into NBA teams is that they really do view these players as pieces of property, as just assets in their portfolios. And I think if Kyle Lowry had slapped the yellow off of Mark Stevens' teeth, it would have made quite the statement. But the way Kyle Lowry handled it was also, I mean, incredibly mature, incredibly smart, strategically and politically even though it would have been quite satisfying, I'm sure, to say, if you push me, then I'll push you back to do a little digital underground reference. Well, that's all we have the time for this week, everybody. Thanks to everybody for listening, and thank you so much to Tracy uh, Leos, uh, that's the French pronunciation. Liast is the English pronunciation. Thank you to her. Uh, thank you absolutely and positively to everybody at The Nation Magazine for sponsoring this podcast. Thank you to my producer. And thank you to everybody out there listening. For everybody out there, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.